Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Well, I believe in the soul. The 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 small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, softcore pornography, opening your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft wet kisses that last three days. Good night. Welcome to Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. And while we have baseball, real baseball, on hiatus for now, uh, we thought we'd take a chance to look at back at some baseball films and, and look back and see if they still hold up today. And here to join me and review some baseball movies is Jeremy Greco, better known as our side as Hokaius. Jeremy, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good. How about you? I'm pretty good. Uh, nice cool weather. It feels like we should be watching the, the Royals play an afternoon set against the White Sox. Sean Newkirk pointed out on Twitter that, you know, we should be watching Jorge Lopez give up like four or five runs in two and a third <laughs> inning against the White Sox, but we have been deprived of that opportunity, but, uh, you know. Oh, still, man. Yeah. But hopefully baseball is going to be back before too long. And uh, uh, But in the meantime, you know, I've enjoyed reviewing baseball movies with you, and, and tonight today we have, I think, one of the, um, I think, most acclaimed and one of the more favorite uh, movies, uh, baseball movies of all time, and that is Bull Durham. Um, I think if you look at most polls of like favorite baseball movies, um, you know the movie we reviewed last time, Major League, is usually in the top three, but usually number one is either Field of Dreams or Bull Durham. Uh, so I guess I just want to ask you, uh, you know, how do you compare Bull Durham as compared to Major League or Field of Dreams? How does it rank on your list of, of favorite baseball movies? Uh, not, not highly. <laughs> um, I think for just my personal enjoyment, um, not talking about the, the objective quality of the movie, but for my personal enjoyment, it is either my least favorite or my second least favorite movie that I've watched for the, for the does it hold up series or for these, uh, podcast reviews. Why is that? Why, what's, I mean, we can get more into the details, but what's just give the quick and overview of what, uh, why you are so contrarian in your taste of baseball movies? So um, a lot of my personal taste when it comes to movies is just to really focus on characters and the, the character journeys. And I like to see um, interesting or unique takes on those. And this movie isn't a movie that's focused on the character journeys as much as 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 just kind of ideas and themes and um and so it does those really well actually uh but the characters don't do much individually and they certainly don't do much that's um particularly unique um but what they do they do do it very well what they do so uh i do have to give it credit for that it's just it's just not uh, as character focused as as movies that i generally prefer yeah, I, such I, as Major League. Yeah, I think I remember you made that point in the, in the review, and and I I do see what you're saying because they're, it's not like this is like some revolutionary plot or you know like like these aren't characters that have you know real changes in human you know in, in development, uh, and it's more of a slice of life film. But like mm-hmm. you say, it does it very very well, and it for me I think this is one of my two top favorite movies, baseball movies. This or Major League, depending on what kind of mood I'm in. I think if I want a comedy, a more you know laugh out loud comedy, it's Major League. If I want something that's a little more subtle, a little more realistic than than, than probably Bull Durham. 
Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I think there's something to be said for like a slice of life type of comedy, especially when it's a slice of life that really up to this point um, in film history hadn't been explored that much. I mean, last time mm-hmm. we talked about how Major League kind of set off a spate of baseball films, but actually, uh, I, I guess I didn't realize this, Bull Durham came out, came out a full year before Major League, yep. and I think maybe you could actually credit Bull Durham as being the one to set it off. Uh, it was yeah. actually released in June of 1988, made for just $9 million, and it grossed $50 million, which may not seem like a lot, but that's a quite a, re- a pretty good return on investment. That's that's a profit. Yeah, and back in 88, that's a really good showing at the box office. Yeah. Uh, and I think because of that profitability, uh, that's kind of what set off all these other baseball movies to be made. Yeah, the definitely. Uh, if it wasn't Bull Durham, it was definitely some combination of Bull mm-hmm. Durham and Major League together that kind of set that off, yeah. for sure. So, you know, I kind of touched upon it a little bit and we'll get a little bit more into the realism of this movie but you know if it seems like one of the most realistic movies and i think that is why it's it is so popular especially among mm-hmm. those in the game like if you ask baseball players i think they'll say bull durham is one of their favorite movies uh and if it seems so realistic it's that's because ron shelton the writer and director of the film was a minor league baseball player uh he was a professional baseball player in the baltimore orioles organization in the late 60s as a middle infielder he was t- teammates with guys like uh, Boog Powell and Bobby Gritch and uh, you know the guys that would end up having a dynasty in Baltimore he was playing aside them and you know he's a guy that uh, was kind of assigned he was a California kid assigned to play in uh, some small town in the Appalachian League in like North Carolina and uh, because he had all this free time on his hands uh, during the day he would watch movies and because uh, yeah, you know, he was watching all these movies. He became quite a, a film buff and got really into, interested in all different genres and types of movies. And that was kind of his education in, in, in film. And um, he made it as far as AAA, which which is pretty good. Uh, kind of a step away from being part of a one of the best teams in baseball. But uh, in 1972, the players had a brief strike in spring training, and he decided to hang them up. Um, just uh, kind of the story of Crash Davis a little bit. Of a guy that you know loved the game of baseball, but but didn't found he couldn't get the same breaks uh, and couldn't make it the way the same way as everyone else could, and I think that was kind of the inspiration. That was at least the seed was planted at that point to, uh, for the for the plot of Bull Durham. So he uh, he ends up getting his master's in fine arts at Arizona State. Actually builds houses for a decade, uh, but in the meantime, you know in his spare time he's working on scripts. Uh, finally sells one uh, a movie by the name of Under Fire. Which uh, was a, a small little movie Nicarag- about a revolutionary war in, in Nicaragua, starring Nick Nolte and Gene Hackman. He ends up selling a second script, uh, which becomes The Best of Times, starring Robin Williams and Kurt Russell, about two adults who uh, relive a high school football game. And that's kind of his genre. It seems like he's, he has kind of a niche in sports. So in his third script, he finally um, works out uh, the script for Bull Durham. He actually worked on it with Kurt Russell, the actor who uh, knew a little bit, a little something about minor league baseball himself, as he was once a professional baseball player. His dad had owned a minor league baseball team in Portland, so uh, a good good guy to work on a script with uh, about minor league baseball. And Russell was actually slated to play Crash Davis. Uh, and it's kind of interesting to see, to think about like what, how that would have worked out with Kurt Russell as in the leading role. And I don't, I, maybe I'm not as familiar with Kurt Russell's work. I, I know, I certainly know some of his bigger movies. I seem to associate him more with action movies and westerns. I don't know, and I know he's done it. He's been a leading man a couple of times. Uh, we know that ultimately Kevin Cosner gets this role, but I don't, can you imagine Kurt Russell in this role? I don't know if he pulls it off quite as, as the way Cosner I, does. Just, and, and I'm speaking from a place where I'm not, uh, I've never been like a, a huge fan of Kurt Russell or Kevin Costner to the point where I seek out their movies to watch them. Um, but just based on what I know and, and kind of my gut, I feel like crash may have been a, an angrier character with Kurt Russell playing the role. But, and I think this was better honestly, but, um, you know, it, it, they're actors, they're paid to act. So, you know, maybe he, he would have found a similar sweet spot to what Kevin Costner did, but that's just my kind of gut impression. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think he, he, he seems like a more rough around the edges kind of guy, whereas Cosner, you know, he's got that polo shirt up, you know, at the batting cage when he's talking to Annie. He's kind of the suave, cool guy at the bar who, you know, even when he gets in a bar brawl, still kind of talks his way out of it. Uh, and I, I, it's hard for me to imagine Kurt Russell in that role, but, you know, who knows? Maybe things work out totally different. 
uh, if it's Kurt Russell, and, and he puts a different twist on it. Uh, but I guess the story was Kurt Russell was going to do the role, one out of town, I think, to promote a movie, and Kevin Cosner gets a hold of the script and loves it. And Kevin Cosner is, of course, a big sports fan, especially baseball. And uh, he wanted to be in the role so badly that he contacts Ron Shelton and says, meet me at the batting cage. <laughs> and uh, so Shelton comes out to meet him and Cosner, you know, steps in the batting cage and starts hitting line drives. I think I think he actually was a switch hitter uh, as Crash mm-hmm. Davis was in the in the in the movie. And he kind of shows off his baseball chops and Shelton was kind of blown away and decides to cast uh, Kevin Cosner in that role instead. Now, this is Kevin Cosner. This isn't like superstar Kevin Cosner. This is like uh, no one knows who he is, Kevin Cosner. He was his claim to fame at the at this time was that he was in the big chill and his, all of the scenes were cut out. So he's not he's not anyone yet. And yet uh, Ron Shelton decides to take kind of a chance on this guy. Uh, it, while they're shopping the script around, like no one wants the script because it's a baseball movie. Baseball movies are seen as poison because box office poison because you know you're, it's a very niche audience and how are you going to get the women to come to the movie? Uh, at least that's the thinking of the studios. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're shopping this movie around while they're doing that. Kevin Cosner has two movies come out that make him a star. One is the untouchables, the mob movie with Sean Connery. The other one is no way out, a thriller with Sean Young. And so by the time Bull Durham is ready to start really being shopped around or really it's, it's well, it's they're shopping this around. Uh, Kevin Cosner is a big star. And so with his name attached to the script, Orion Pictures says, okay, well, we've got a star here with Kevin Cosner. We're willing to give you $9 million, which really isn't that much to make a movie, but we'll give you creative freedom and you can direct it, which is what uh, Shelton had wanted, be, wanted to do for a while. He'd never directed a film. And so they're able to kind of get this movie movie going because of Kevin Cosner and because he was, he was behind it. Uh, so Cosner plays Crash Davis, kind of the world-weary catcher who's been around baseball, been everywhere, um, and kind of his foil in this film a little bit, or at least uh, the player that he has to take under his wing is Ebby Calvin Lelouch. Uh, I love that name. Yeah, right. I just got to throw that out there. Yeah. Well, I guess it's Ron Sheldon got the inspiration from a waiter that actually was named Ebby Calvin Lelouch or I think <laughs> his name was Ebby Calvin LaRouche. And so they barely changed it, tweaked it a little bit, but that is actually someone's name, which yeah, it's uh, to me, it seemed too ridiculous to be a real name, but, Apparently it is. So yeah, I thought I thought for sure it was a parody of of crazy baseball names. Somehow mm-hmm. that's that's great. Well, he does say he needs a nickname, and yeah, <laughs> and the nickname he comes up with for himself is Nuke. Of course, a nickname that Crash Davis comes up with for him is Meat. <laughs> which <laughs> uh, so you can do you know, whichever nickname you prefer. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, he's a so he's the the young pitcher. He's the young prize prospect, and who who, who needs guidance. Uh, I guess originally the studio wanted Anthony Michael Hall in this role. Um, he had been on Saturday Night Live. He had starred, I think, Johnny B. Good. So he had done some sports movies, although from what I remember that film, he was didn't really look like a quarterback out there. Uh, but I guess he had a he had a lunch with Ron Shelton about the role. He hadn't read the script. Uh, he kind of he was late. Uh, he just really mm. didn't impress Shelton. Shelton was actually really irate with him. So he said, "Like he's like, guy's not going to be in my movie." Uh, he really wanted Charlie Sheen, but Char- Charlie Sheen was already committed to be in the other base in another baseball movie, Bl- Eight Men Out, about the Black Sox scandal. So he couldn't do it. David Duchovny was considered at one point. Um, Tim Rob, so they kind of came to Tim Robbins, and Robbins is also considering doing uh, Eight Men Out. So he had to choose between the two baseball films, and he opted to do uh, Bull Durham. Uh, and I don't know. It, <laughs> I think I'd have rather seen Charlie Sheen. I mean, I, I think we talked last week about. You know, if we talk mm-hmm. about who are the best actors to portray baseball players, Kevin Cosner and Charlie Sheen are probably your your gold standard. Tim Robbins is pretty way down, pretty far down on the list. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I know that he has to look. I, I think they played up his delivery a little bit for mm-hmm. laughs, and you know, they referenced Fernando Valenzuela a little bit how he looked to the sky when he gave his delivery, and so there's a little of that. But I did notice that, like all those. All most of his pitching is done with very tight shots, so you can't really see a lot of his body. Mm-hmm. And when you do see his body doing a delivery, it just looks ridiculous <laughs> for a guy <laughs> supposedly throwing 95 miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, so that my one big sticking point with Bull Durham has been that that, that just that there's so much realism in this movie when it comes to baseball. And Ebby Nuke Lelouch's delivery does not look like a guy that throws 95 miles an hour. 
Yeah. I for whatever reason I I just can't bring myself to to care much about how how much of how much the actors look like they can actually play the sport as a general rule so that that didn't bother me as much, but um, I can I could see how it would bother other people for sure. I, I don't think it would bother me if it was basketball or football, I, but because baseball, mm-hmm. I'm so mm-hmm. you know I'm such a big baseball fan. I think I know right. it much more now. In his fairness, Tim Robbins is excellent in the role. Otherwise, like he has yeah. great comedic timing. He's really good at playing the kind of uh, naive naive uh, fool at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie, which mm-hmm. he does it without kind of being an an a-hole like if you if you right, don't like Ebby exactly. Lelouch at the beginning or if you don't like Ebby Lelouch throughout this film I think I think it doesn't work and I think another actor maybe portrays him more like a d-bag or more like you know just yeah. someone you, you hate you brought up Charlie Sheen and and um as likable as Charlie Sheen actually ends up being in Major League um you know the character does does kind of just he starts off very early in the movie is is kind of a jerk um and i wonder how much of that would have just kind of hung around charlie sheen if he'd continued uh, if he'd done the role if he'd have continued to seem like a jerk for for longer than than tim robbins did yeah uh we also have susan sarandon as annie savoy annie is kind of the let's say super fan of the durham bulls uh would be one way of putting it um uh, yeah she's she's the romantic interest of both uh, Abby Lelouch and Crash Davis, um, and I guess originally the Ron Sheldon wanted Ellen Barkin to play this role. Ellen Barkin, uh, very very she great career up to that point, still has a great career uh, playing very sultry, seductive women. Um, I guess Michelle Pfeiffer, Glenn Close, and Mary Steenburgen also auditioned for the role. The studio really wanted Kim Basinger, uh, and she I think she had some other obligations and couldn't do it, and. Susan Sarandon was kind of like, I guess, what they kind of settled on, but there were some strong objections to having Sarandon in the role by at least one executive in the studio. And I guess to convince them, Sarandon <laughs> went down to the executive's office in her most, her slinkiest, most seductive dress and really hammed it up, like bending over and kind of, and being funny too, because the knock on her was she was too old, she wasn't funny, she wasn't sexy enough. And I guess that won them over. And for me, Basinger would have been a total bad cast, I think. And mm-hmm. maybe that's because maybe we didn't get to see what Kim Basinger does can do. You know, she maybe she was typecast as like the the pretty, sexy woman who is more. Here, her roles seem to be more like a damsel in distress a lot. Mm-hmm. Whereas Annie Savoy is definitely a woman with agency, a woman in control, is confident. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, and she's the narrator. She's really the one that has to hold this movie together. And Susan Sarandon nails that. I mean, she got a lot yeah. of critical acclaim for this part. And it's hard to, for me to imagine really anyone else in this role. Yeah, she's she's basically perfect in this role. Any anyone else, it it wouldn't have worked at all. And and she took this role and and just wrung every bit of good that there was to be wrung out of it. Yeah, and and I'll be honest, like I don't. I don't find her like her, just the looks of her. Like she's not the, like the sexiest woman in Hollywood or anything like that, but just the mm-hmm. way she carries herself in this movie, mm-hmm. it, it, her words and her, the way she just moves across the screen is she's a very seductive woman. And, yep. and it's totally believable that she would seduce this young ball player and this older ball player. And, mm-hmm. and but also there's the way she um, also shows her vulnerability at the end uh, mm-hmm. when she does actually fall in love, uh, just the way she, carries herself with with how much she loves baseball and her love of poetry i think she really pulled off the role it's kind of a, a little bit of a difficult difficult role i think and she does a, a very good job of it and, and like i said it's it's hard to imagine anyone else in that role um so the, the, the just the basic plot of the movie in case you, you you've forgotten or you haven't seen this movie the durham bulls are a class a team in the carolina at least at that time they were a class a team in the carolina league um, which is typically where you send your first-year players, guys just starting out their careers. They have their prize prospect in Ebby Calvin Lelouch, who is described in the movie as having a million-dollar arm but a ten-cent head. <laughs> of course, in his ma- in his professional debut, he's caught in the clubhouse um, having romantic relations with uh, a young fan, a female fan. Uh, so that's kind of that kind of sets the tone of kind of like where his head's are, head head is. He's, he's not exactly taking baseball seriously. In his professional debut, he strikes out 18, but walks 18, which 
if you strike out 18 and walk 18, what do you think his pitch count was that day? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be like 250 for a kid that is making his first start, which this is 1987. They didn't coddle, uh, you know, professional pitchers back then. I mean, you're going to go nine innings, your professional debut. So, uh, but, you know, obviously he has some, some command issues, uh, but he's got that great, uh, that great velocity. Uh, so to kind of harness that potential, they, uh, the team acquires Crash Davis, who's a veteran catcher who's been around the league. In fact, he even faced the pitching coach uh, who's played by Robert Wool, um, who does a really great job stealing a couple scenes with his comedic mm-hmm. timing. Um, but, uh, but Crash has been around the league. He's seen it all. He is brought in to kind of be the mentor, the, the veteran presence to guide young Lelouch uh, to get him to the show, uh, to the big leagues. And, of course, when Crash, you know, Crash has been in AAA at this point, and he says, what, what the heck am I doing here in A-ball? And they tell him he's basically here to be a babysitter, and he quits on the spot. <laughs> he says, I don't, <laughs> screw this game. I, you know, <laughs> F this game. I'm done. <laughs> Which yeah. I think that's perfect because like, that's exactly what a AAA catcher would say. Oh, yeah. Uh, initially, if you told him, hey, you're going to A-ball, and you're going to take care of our prized prospect. We don't care what happens to you. Uh, and then, of course, the manager points out, well, you know, you can still show up to the ballpark every day and get paid. That beats working at Sears, which yeah. is Robert Wool chiming in with like, yeah, I, I worked at Sears once. <laughs> Horrible business. You don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I when I was when I was younger and I first watched this, my initial reaction to hearing about Crash Davis and, it, and we're told that he's, this, you know, he's close to setting the, the minor league record for most home runs in a career. So he's obviously a really good minor league baseball player. And mm-hmm. when I was younger, I didn't understand because I was like, well, if he's so good in the minors, why didn't he get to be in the majors? And we, we learned, he, you know, he did get a stint in the majors, but it was only his longest stint was 21 days. And, you know, this is when I, you know, this is when I was younger, so I didn't understand because I remember when I was a kid, the Royals had this guy that was like leading the triple a and wins and they brought him up and i was like oh i'm so excited let's go i want to go see his his royals debut and i was just so excited i thought we had this great prospect it turns out he was like this 31 year old journeyman who you know was in triple a because they needed someone to uh pitch in triple a and he was winning some games so they thought it, they, they needed a spot start from someone and I, you know of course he got shelled and was back in triple a and there are there are tons of guys like that there are just yep. a lot of guys that are good in AAA, they get a chance in the show, and, and they, they, they either can't do it or they they only get a couple of bats, or sometimes they don't even get a chance. Like, I mean, think about how many Brandon Burgers or, or Kit Pellows or Kila Kahui's are out there who put up great minor league numbers and just didn't really get their, their big shot in the big leagues. And I, I think this movie is kind of for them. At least that's kind of the impression yeah. I got. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cause it, it really does kind of break that mold of, of a lot of baseball movies are, are, um, you just watch like so many of them angels in the outfield comes to mind immediately. Uh, but really a bunch of them where these guys are, Hey, major league. Um, these guys just seem like they, they could be good or they're mediocre at best. And, and they just need to find that one, that one secret to unlock their potential and suddenly they become superstars. And then this movie is like, well, you know, he's been good for a long time, but he's never been quite good enough. And, 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 and as the movie goes on, that just continues to be true. Yeah. And I think that Shelton even kind of, I guess explicitly talks about that when he talked about why he wrote the film. And I guess he, he said he'd always hated baseball films because someone always wins the game with the walk off home run. And, and he <laughs> said, and he says, quote, you know, they always have a big game at the end, and someone always hits the walk-off grand slam, which almost never happens. Baseball right. careers end on a ground ball to short. And he yep. knew it. I mean, he played the game, and, you know, there's a story in Sports Illustrated about how he, he said he was he was kind of tired of the mythology of baseball, and that wasn't the baseball he knew. These sports writers come up with these flowery narratives about, you know, these these baseball players that are they're like gods to the to the sports writers but but to him they were just like normal guys like normal 20 year old guys who talk about all the same things normal 20 year old guys talk about women and cars and and other sports and um mm-hmm. he, he talks about the story about um he's at spring training one year and carl ustrimsky and uh another orioles ball player or, or orioles um carl ustrimsky and uh, i think it was reggie jackson were, were sitting talking to each other in spring training and 
and Shelton is talking to a sports writer and, and the sport and, and sport the sports writer is like, what do you think they're talking about? I bet they're talking about like the intricacies of, of hitting a curveball and, and, and the art of hitting. And Shelton's like, BS, they're talking about getting laid <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's, that's the baseball he knew. And yeah. I think, you know, when you see the conversations of the players in this game, in this movie, even from crash and, and Lelouch, I mean, what's foremost, foremost on their mind getting laid <laughs> so, yep. and so i think that's what's really great is it does kind of take down the veneer of baseball a little bit uh so you know initially when when lelouch and davis first meet a lot of hostility davis doesn't want to be there lelouch doesn't really want instruction from a guy he doesn't really respect because he didn't you know he's not exactly like a big ba- big league star so why should he be listening to this triple a catcher uh they actually kind of get into a, a brawl outside where uh, Lelouch doesn't want to hit him first, so Crash Davis gives him a baseball and says, well, if you could hit me in the chest, uh, uh, you can have the first shot then. And Lelouch kind of takes the bait uh, and throws it, and of course he can't hit he can't hit Davis because he's so wild. And, and that's kind of the first lesson, I guess, for, for young Lelouch. And so you know, Crash Davis takes him under his wing, uh, kind of educates him not just about baseball, but how to conduct yourself off the field, how to wear, how to wear shower shoes. Uh, <laughs> you think, you know, what does he say? Did you think Dwight Gooden my, wears flip flops? One of my in the favorite shower? parts of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Cause he says, he says when you're, when you're in the big leagues and you got mold on your shower shoes, then you're eccentric. <laughs> but when you're in the minor leagues, you're just, uh, um, it's like dirty or lazy or something like that. But yeah. yeah. yeah and it's it, true. Right. And then the, the other great one is, uh, when he's teaching him about talking to the media, cause he, <laughs> Yes, because Lelouch's first interview with the media, he's like all he's all over the place. He says uh, something like, uh, you know, it, how do you feel about your start? Well, it was out there. I mean, like it was out there, but it was out there. It's like okay, <laughs> this guy doesn't know how to talk to the media, and so Davis and I love Davis's instruction is you know he gives him all the great cliches. You know, we want to take it one yeah. day at a time. Good Lord willing, I'm just happy to be here. I want to help out the team. All the great cliches, and you know, of course, even Lelouch is like, "Well, this doesn't mean anything." And Davis says, "That's the point. <laughs> you don't want yep. you don't want to say anything to the to the reporters." So, um, so, so I mean, that kind of I mean, there's a lot of really great nuggets uh, of just you know, and they take like every aspect of baseball. The manager is looking to rattle the t- you know, he's like, "How do I get to this team? They are, we keep losing, and I I'm just trying to." You know, I'm just trying. I beg and I plead. I, I just want them to focus. And, and Crash Davis is like, you know, they're they're 20 year old kids. Why don't you scare them? So the manager, mm-hmm. you know, he's not really mad at them, but he just takes a big bucket of base uh, baseball bats, throws in the shower, yells at everyone, barks at everyone to get in the shower, and then he gives this great the the great infamous lollygagging speech where you lollygag around the field, you lollygag here. What does that make you? Lollygag. <laughs> Robert Wool with great comedic timing says yeah. lollygaggers. Uh, so just that's an, another great little. Uh, like aspect of the of the of baseball that of course as we as fans would never ever get to see, but right. uh, but be, you know because we get this the curtain pulled back a little bit, uh, Shelton gives us a little, this little glimpse with a comedic twist uh, that that's, I think is just so great. Let's talk a little about Annie and the love triangle we have in this movie. Last week we talked. Last time we talked about Major League, the love story wasn't great. Uh, it was a little stalkerish. <laughs> just- to uh to oh what's the phrase to put it mildly yes uh yeah this one everything seems to be a lot more consensual annie savoy um so her her shtick is that every year she kind of adopts one of the durham bulls to be under her she takes them under her wing if you will and guides them uh, both in baseball and also in the bedroom uh, so she has a romantic relationship with a different player each year. Interesting, she also points out it has to be a player with promise. So she's not taking the scrubs. Uh, right. She only takes the players that have some kind of a promise. Of course, Ebby uh, Lelouch is the best player, the best, most promising prospect on the team. So it's between him, but also she's kind of intrigued when she meets Crash Davis in this bar. And so she brings them both back to her um, her place to kind of get to know them a little bit better. And Lelouch is all on board with, with the arrangement while Davis says, look, I'm I'm at the point in my career where I don't try out anymore. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. This isn't for me. And in a way, I think kind of his rejection of her probably wants makes her want him even more, mm-hmm. especially when he gives his his monologue. Uh, 
that's become a famous monologue now about what he believes in that kind of right. leaves her speechless. Uh, and I think that kind of sets a tone right there of Cosner. First of all, that's kind of when he becomes a Hollywood le- leading man. No way out. He had, I think set that tone too. He had some great scenes there, but, but in Bull Durham, he really is the romantic uh, suave guy that every guy wants to be, every woman wants to be with. And it's kind of his, his willingness to walk away from her, even though it's pretty clear he has some attraction to her as well. Mm-hmm. Of like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go through this charade. I don't want to. I think he flat out says, I don't want to be with someone that wants to be with this knucklehead. And yep. that kind of sets the tone of Cosner, I think, as the leading man. What, what did you kind of think of uh, of the the way they set up the the love triangle and kind of the romance in general? So, um, first of all, I just want to say about that speech that. I disagree with like half of the things he believes in, <laughs> but I still thought it was really good. Then he like, says the it way with such conviction. Do- yeah, he almost makes me think that the DH is bad. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah. So I just had to I have to throw that out there. So um, it's really interesting, um, and I think it's it's really unique. Um, this is where I kind of get into um, social issues a little bit, I guess, because um, I'm I'm gonna bet and i guess i would have to go back and and do a, some more research to to say with 100 certainty but i'm gonna bet that there weren't a lot of movies in 1988 where uh the woman was the one uh that was basically telling the guys how it's gonna be uh in the bedroom um where she's she's basically like listen i'm gonna pick one of you guys and then you're gonna do everything my way mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that you're going to see that a lot in 1988. So that was that was um, some pretty forward thinking, or well, I guess forward thinking works. Uh, forward thinking kind of writing and some some uh, an interesting approach, uh, maybe a risky approach that you uh, you you wouldn't see because I can I can see other people uh, getting offended by that sort of thing because that's just how it goes sometimes. But um, you know, so that was that was a really interesting thing, and. Um, and I like how it progresses from there also in, in that she takes uh, Nuke back to the bedroom and ties him up and starts reading him Walt Whitman because <laughs> she she is really going to do this her way regardless of whatever uh, whatever he wants, you know. Um, and, and, and so she's very in control, which is, I, I think, uh, even now, honestly, I would think is a pretty unique kind of situation to put the characters in. I have to point out too. Just to give Tim Robbins some props. He has a great, great jump in there where they're kind of arguing. He says, uh, "So is someone going to jump in bed with someone or what?" Because that's <laughs> you know, of course, that's all the only thing in his, on his right. mind. And uh, you know, it's, right. just, it's funny anytime she tries to bring up poetry or or chakras or anything kind of about the cosmos. He's always thinking about getting get, getting in bed and and uh, mm-hmm. getting laid with her. So uh, but he, he does a good job of, of playing up. But yeah, I agree. Like it's it's kind of refreshing to see the woman have like all the agency and like, she's kind of laying out, dictating the terms right. of what's going to happen. And uh, it does kind of set a different dynamic. And, and especially, uh, you know, when you talk about a, a love triangle, I think it's really, it's, it's a really interesting way to go about it. Um, yeah. Cause usually, usually when you see a love triangle, um, it's, it is usually two guys and one woman, but what you'll often see is uh, both the guys want the woman and she can't make up her mind and um so in this case she's like listen i'm not gonna play this game where i can't make up my mind we're just gonna sit down and we're gonna figure this out we're gonna eliminate this whole triangle situation (laughs) so uh so i I really did appreciate that because i i do hate love triangles just as a personal (laughs) aside i hate them so much yeah and it's interesting like it's I, I I agree, and I I generally d- dislike the will they or won't they trope, mm-hmm. and there is kind of that in in this movie because throughout the movie she's with Lelouch, and Crash tries to still tries to get with her a couple of times, mm-hmm. but she's like, well, I'm pretty monogamous during the season, you know, I you know <laughs> you know, uh, in, in her own parameters, like she's monogamous during the baseball season, right? Um, so and and credit for for that also, um, in that. They didn't feel the need to to be like, oh well, all of my relationships always fall apart when they move away. It was like, no, I choose this life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Sorry, a, that's a really good point. Yeah, she she chooses. She knows that they're they're going to move on from from Durham. I mean, even Lelouch when he gets promoted, 
is like, you know, I'll see you again. She's like, no, you won't. <laughs> no one ever comes back to Durham. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I think she kind of understands, you know, we kind of understand where she's coming from and she, she, she's very upfront about what's going to happen. So, um, but I guess what, for me, I don't know if it really, it's not like the greatest, uh, like love story ever or anything like that. Not that it's trying to be, I think the love story is just like, just kind of a way to wedge into showing the slice of life, uh, baseball story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's like, it's just enough, I think to kind of keep your interest in, and it's it's a good way to have Annie as the narrator and kind of hold the movie together. It's it's kind of what I guess brings the movie to, keeps the movie together. Uh, but as far as like most compelling uh, romances, uh, I I don't know. It's it's okay. Yeah, and and I think the the what it kind of comes down to is that it's really um, the the romance isn't there for the sake of the romance. It's there for the sake of of some of the the theming that's going on in this movie, and one of the themes is um, is, is maturity and and gaining maturity. So if you if you look at the minor leagues as as maybe a metaphor for hitting puberty, then Nuclelus shows up and he's like, I want to have sex all the time. Like that's all he cares about, right? And he doesn't really care who it's with or or anything else. He's just like, it's just got to happen and it's got to happen now and it's got to happen fast. And then he meets her. And as the movie goes on, their relationship is really just about him, like learning who he is and, and growing into a man, both on the field with Crash's help and off the field with Annie's help where, where um, you know, it becomes less of a of a I'm gonna just do this right now thing and more of a uh, an intentional planned uh, thing where he he really puts effort into uh, you know his relationship with her as the movie goes on so the uh, the Durham Bulls kind of struggle early on and, and Lelouch uh, is getting it seems like he's having some struggles too um, some of them are lessons delivered by crash Davis for example when Davis is shaken off and he decides to kind of tell the batter, the opposing hitter, what pitch is coming uh, just to kind of send his message to, to Lelouch. And of course the, it's a fastball and it gets hammered off the bull, which I always love that they, they added a bull there to, if you hit the yeah. ball, you got to win a free stake. Um, and so and they kept it out there. They, they had to add that and they kept it out there after the movie was filmed Yeah, for the real Durham, uh, Durham bulls. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's it, it, part of the lessons that that Lelouch learns under Crash Davison. Eventually, starts listening to Crash more and starts having some success. Some success, and the Bulls themselves have some more success. Um, and and so you know, Davis is kind of fulfilling his role eventually. And the team goes on such a winning streak that, of course, uh, well, I love that it shows the, the baseball players how superstitious they are. Uh, that. They they can't mess with a winning streak by uh, having romantic relations, so mm-hmm. that leaves Annie high and dry as far as getting with uh, Evie Lelouch. And um, of course, I think Crash Davis had a little something to do with that because he's the one that convinces um, uh, Lelouch not to sleep with Annie during the winning streak. Probably had an ulterior motive there. I think a little bit, but I see. I I that's the opposite of the, the interpretation I had of that of that whole thing because i even um in the article or the review i wrote um i i put in the the uh the dialogue between crash and annie when that happens and i i thought it was it spoke to 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 some kind of reality so uh crash tells her i never told him to stay out of your bed and she says yes you did and he says i told him that a player in a streak has to respect the streak she says oh fine he says you know why because they don't they don't happen very often she says right he says, if you believe you're playing well because you're getting laid or because you're not getting laid or because you wear women's underwear, then you are and you should know that. And so what he's saying right there is I didn't tell him to to not sleep with you, to tell him to not sleep with you. I told him because he believes that that's what's happening, that he's got to do – he's got to continue to follow what he believes – to keep the streak because they don't come around very often and, and you've just got it, whatever you believe. Cause, cause the game, uh, what was it? Yogi Berra used to say that it's 90% mental and then <laughs> nine and then 50% perspiration or something like that. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, mind games that go into, to sports. So 
so I think what Crash is saying is like, no, I I really wasn't trying to mess with your love life. I I just wanted him to understand that whatever you believe is causing your streak, that's what you got to stick with. Yeah, I think and that I think spells a lot about um, kind of the themes of the movie of like the the, the fine line between success and failure in baseball. Mm-hmm. And I know mm-hmm. Sheldon I think talked about when he was a ball player how you're always feeling like you've got to catch the next guy and you always feel like someone's going to catch you. They always have to perform. They're always watching you. He said something like, everything you do is being recorded, of course, like by baseball reference or whatever, you know, you're you're the box score. Um, And so you feel like you always have to perform and it's an amazing amount of pressure, but it's also, you, you feel tremendously alive because of that pressure. And, and I think even Crash Davis at the towards the end has a speech where he talks about, you know, the difference between like a 250 hitter and a 300 hitter is like a, a duck snort every week. Uh, you know, you get one flare, right. you get one broken bat single each week, a ground ball with eyes. If you get one of those each week, you're a 300 hitter instead of a 250 hitter. You're, you're in the show where your bags are chauffeured and you eat room service meals instead of riding the bus between Asheville and Chattanooga. So, you know, I th- th- that's a theme that I think really hit home because, you know, a lot of us have dreams where you know we didn't we didn't achieve or you know dreams that um we maybe we felt like we were good enough to achieve them and for whatever reason they didn't and a lot of this comes down to luck too you can be a terrific ball player crash davis could very well could have been good enough to play in the big leagues but he never got that opportunity you know maybe there was a catcher in front of him that was was an all-star and he just never had a roster spot Maybe a coach didn't like him. Maybe he did get a chance and was sick that week or was nursing a bum leg and uh, couldn't really hit. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why truly talented people don't get opportunities in whatever walk of life. And I think that's kind of the, I think that's why this resonates so well is because it's not necessarily about the all-star MVP type player. It's about a good, good player who is slumming it in the Carolina league because he loves the game so damn much. And uh, and and I think Sheldon even put it this way: it's 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 a game that he loves that doesn't love him back, uh, yeah. that, that kind of treats him badly, and um, and yet he still loves it. I mean, he he loves it so much that even after he finally gets the girl, um, he's he's kind of towards the end of the movie, he's let go. Lelouch is promoted to the big leagues. Uh, Crash Davis, his purpose has has been served. He's no longer his services are no longer needed. He is unceremoniously released from his contract. Um, so at that point, with Lelouch gone, uh, him and Annie finally get to hook up. But even after all that, he still has to go drive down to Asheville because he heard about a job that where they may need a catcher, and he still can't quite give up the game, uh, even pursuing a, a backup catching job in Asheville to f- finish out the season. So I think that's that's the thing that I think it really it really came home, and uh, I think it's part of why this this movie is so uh, so so beloved. Um, mm-hmm. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll kind of wrap things up and, and talk about some of the some of the trivia from the fun trivia from the movie and how it was uh, received in the years since. All right, so at the end of the movie, we said you know Annie, Annie kind of chooses Crash once Lelouch is gone, and they kind of consummate their flirtation. Uh, just how do you feel about that love triangle? I guess kind of resolving itself. Uh, and how that all worked out the this is this is probably the weakest point of the movie from my perspective and i know not everyone agrees with this um there was some heated debate when i wrote about it uh a few weeks ago but basically uh as we talked about at the beginning of the movie annie is is kind of ahead of her time at least as far as movies go where she's in control of the situation at all times she decides who she's going to be with and what the terms of them being together are and, and i he, we talked to you mentioned when when Newt goes and she says they don't come back but to my way of thinking that wasn't even just her being like i accept that you're leaving and won't come back that was her saying no i don't want you to come back um you know for a variety of reasons but that was still her being in control but then there's crash and her, her relationship with crash kind of starts. We start, we talked about how she's in control at the beginning and crash walks out basically because he's not in control of the situation. And then at the end of the movie, um, Annie, Annie and crash get together and then crash leaves her and then crash comes back and she just takes him immediately back. So the way that it reads to me 
is that Annie starts off as this person who's very in control of her situations and her relationships. And then at the end of the movie, um, her final state is to have given up that control um, for for this guy that she's developed an attraction to. And she basically uh, is going to be monogamous with him. The, the, the implication, at least, is that, that she's going to be monogamous with him for forever at this point. Uh, they're going to live happily ever after. And um, so she's basically giving up her her whole way of life to to be with this man who immediately, who initially, I should say, uh, rejected her control of her own destiny. And in the end, she sacrifices her control of her own destiny to be with him. And that just doesn't sit right with me as far as, um, as, as giving as she starts off as the strong character and it feels like she has that strength taken away from her at the end. And, and as I said, I know not everyone agrees with that perspective, but that's, that's how it reads to me. Yeah. I will disagree with that as well. I think um, she does change, you know, in the way you say, I think though, that's her development as a character to someone that's actually legitimately fallen in love. And I think, when you fall in love, you do tend to, you lose your agency because you're suddenly at the mercy of another person. Uh, and they're, you know, if they're in love with you, they're, you're mer- they're at the mercy of you. And so you, you, you do kind of give up. You can't just do whatever you want. You can't just sleep with the next young ball player that comes around because you are in a relationship now. You can't just do whatever you want. Uh, and because you, you have to think, consider someone else's needs. Um, now what has he given up? He, he does quit. He quits after his season with Asheville. He comes back to her. He says, I've given it up. So I would point out that he doesn't immediately quit. He goes and finishes right. out the season with Asheville. He leaves her to do that. And Which she seems back. to understand. She says he yeah. needs to finish out the season. Um, so, you know, how does it end up in the end though? He mentions that there's a managing job in Visalia, California. Um, you know, the, the, Skipper had told him that you know he he would put in a good word for him as a as a minor league manager, so that's a possibility. Um, how do you think things work out for for Annie and and Crash? They they have talked about doing a sequel for many years. It doesn't seem like it will ever happen. But how do you how do you how do Crash and Annie uh, do they end up going to Visalia and riding off into the sunset? Yeah, I I can't see him giving up baseball entirely. Um, does she want him to though? Because she's. I don't think a big she does either. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously this has been a very big part of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that he he will want to manage, and I think that she will she'll be okay with that for sure, and yeah. go with him. Um, Where, whether that's Visalia or wherever he ends up managing, uh, it is interesting. You did write a little bit about how the movie treats women, and um, it, it was interesting. I guess originally. You know, Ron Sheldon had a really hard time with the script, and it wasn't until he figured out using Annie as the narrator, and uh, and it actually came up that the beginning monologue where she talks about her love of base, the church of baseball, and how much she loves the game. That was what he came up with, and that was kind of like the, the voila, voila moment for him, and he was able to kind of pound out the script after that. Uh, and it was kind of using her voice that he was able to kind of sketch this movie around. Uh, originally, though, he was going to have her love of baseball stem from from her childhood meeting with Thurman Munson, the catcher of the Yankees, who tragically died in a, a plane accident, about how she met him after the death of her father. And um, when he when Munson died, she took it very hard and that she resolved to become a baseball fan, which tested, I guess, very poorly among audiences. And to me, also, it doesn't really make much sense. I, I'm, I much prefer that her baseball love of baseball kind of come organically like any other mm-hmm. baseball fan, like any yeah. other male baseball fans love of baseball would come about. Sure. And, and and that she legitimately seems like a very knowledgeable and smart baseball fan who knows about Fernando Valenzuela's delivery and, and uh, you know, is, can hold a radar gun and knows a lot about the game. Um, so I like that about her. I like that they fleshed her out as this, as this really legitimately smart baseball fan. Yeah. Um, what what else? How else did this movie uh, portray women in your mind? Um, just to to go back to Annie real quick, I do think I think you may have a point there. 
um, as far as like, that's how love is. And I, I, I think it goes back to the thing I was saying earlier also about that. One of the themes of this movie is mature maturity and maturation. And, and it's kind of a moment for her to grow up and, and become monogamous. Like the, with the idea that when you're younger, you sow your wild oats and then eventually you settle down. Um, which is not a perspective that I necessarily agree with. But um, I can certainly understand how it would end up in a movie, certainly one from 30 years ago, um, and and be considered uh, a good moral, uh, a good, a good, not moral, that's not really the word I want, but like a, a background theme and idea. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, um, Millie is pretty much the only other character, uh, female character, uh, who shows up in this movie. And... And she, I feel like, gets kind of this. She gets like a mini Annie treatment. So whatever you feel about Annie, you probably feel about Millie. She starts off again, very knowledgeable uh, about baseball, and she also uh, makes her own conquests of the baseball players, as opposed to vice versa. And then in the end, ends up settling down with uh, the team Christian. <laughs> Which I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if that was. If the Annie stuff wasn't there, I wouldn't even read anything into that because that's that's obviously just a bit. Yeah. Because you got your team Christian going around like, oh, you guys shouldn't be doing this. You guys shouldn't be doing that. And then she's going around like hitting on every single guy she can find. I mean, she uh, there was a there's a moment where she's like going down the the bullpen yeah. behind all the guys like, <laughs> hey, how you doing? Hey. And one guy's like, I'm married. You know. <laughs> just go on. So that that was that was pretty obviously a bit. I only bring it up because it it does feel like uh kind of a excuse me um it does feel kind of like a, a mini annie kind of arc yeah i kind of feel like she's just in there for kind of comedic relief a little bit mm-hmm. just as a another kind of colorful character in durham um it, but the, it's interesting they have that the, the super christian character who's you know can i give you my testimony but i do feel like they treat him with a little more respect than like harris is given in major league like harris is kind of treated as, as a little bit of a joke like it's kind of a funny to be a, a Christian. Yeah. Whereas this, I think, takes it a little more seriously. Like, you know, he's a Christian. He believes what he believes, and you know, the, the guys get him like this really raunchy uh, engagement cake, and it's kind of funny that he marries uh, and ends up marrying the, I guess, the more promiscuous uh, right. uh, member of the uh, fan. But um, but I, yeah, I think they I think they gave him a lot more respect than, than maybe Harris. Also, this movie. Uh, has another voodoo, a player that plays in voodoo, just oh, like yeah. Major League. So another yes. kind of idea they ripped off in Major League from Bull Durham. But um, I, uh, I think there's just some some stereotypes that just live in all baseball movies. <laughs> uh, we can kind of wrap things up. Just a little trivia, a little odds and ends. Uh, we should talk a little bit about Robert Wool, uh, who oh later, yes, absolutely later would end up being a, uh, playing a sports agent in the HBO show Arliss, but. Um, he kind of really steals some scenes. Probably the most uh, quoted one is when they're all <laughs> they're doing a mound visit, and everyone's just kind of talking about all the problems are going over. Like the first baseman, his girlfriend has placed a hex on his glove. He needs a live chicken to sacrifice. Uh, Lelouch is complaining he can't breathe through his eyelids because Annie has told him uh, <laughs> Fernanda Valenzuela breathes through his eyelids. Um, they they don't know where to get what to get Millie. Uh, and I forget her, her her fiance's name, but they don't know what to get him for their for their wedding. And so Robert Wool just kind of calmly says, "Well, candlesticks always make a nice gift, and uh, you know you could always find out where they're registered and uh, get them like a place setting." All right, let's go. <laughs> and I think that's just that's just I mean, number one, it's great because it's anytime there's a mound visit, you can use it. But uh, but I guess Wool totally improvised that line from a conversation he had with his wife, which it just shows yep. what a great uh, comedic actor he is. And he, and he really just kind of steals every scene he, he's in uh, as kind of like the sidekick to the manager. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, he he's does great. great. He, he's he terrific. Great yeah. There's uh, there's not there's not a bad actor or actress in this movie. They're all they're all carry their roles extremely well yeah yeah absolutely um so other odds and ends um max patkin the clown base the clown of baseball who actually was a real guy who would show up at a baseball stadium usually minor league baseball stadiums and kind of do a clown bit kind of like a, a like a mascot or like the san diego chicken would do um he's featured a little bit in the movie he kind of introduces annie to crash at the beginning and i guess there was a scene where um so Annie shows up in one scene and she's all dressed in black. It's never really explained why, 
Well, that's because I cut out a scene where she's coming back from Max Patkin's funeral, which is weird because Matt, Max Patkin was a real person and he didn't die until 1999. <laughs> so Ron Sheldon wrote that Max Patkin, the real person, died in 1987. I, <laughs> 12 I years knew, before I, he I died. I read that, she, that they cut a scene about her going to a funeral. I didn't read. I didn't know it was Max. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I don't, a, I don't know what. That's he was not thinking. a thing you want to write. Yeah. Like he wasn't like a young guy. I mean, he was like in his, I think, 60s. Like he was, you know, you don't want to like foreshadow anyone's death. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's probably a good thing they, they took that out. Um, Paula Abdul had a part in this movie. She taught Tim Robbins how to dance for the bar scene, which there wasn't any dancing in there that I thought needed to be like, you know, when you dance in a bar, you know, you do the white guy shuffle usually, you know, yeah. like I don't, I didn't think Paula Abdul renowned dancer, LA girl, LA Laker girl, choreographer needed to be brought in for that role. But I guess she, she came in and did it. Then asked Ron Sheldon, okay, what's my speaking part? And he's like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, I was told if I did this, I would get a speaking part in the movie. He's like, I don't have a speaking part for you. And she got irate and stormed off the set yelling at everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, we missed out on Paula Abdul being in this movie. Uh, there is a former royal kind of in this movie. Uh, so one of the ball players is Danny Gantz, who um, he's actually featured pretty prominently among the players that don't have names. Um, but he uh, he was a Las Vegas entertainer for several years. And... Um, I unfortunately died, I think, about 10 years ago. But he was cast because he was actually a baseball player. He played a one season of minor league baseball in the Chicago White Sox organization. But that's only because the year before he was drafted by the Royals and didn't sign, but drafted in the 35th round out of high school. And so he had a little bit of baseball uh, background, and he ended up uh, kind of, I guess, springboarding, springboarding from that. And ended, he ended up having a Vegas career. Um it's, what is interesting is like a lot of the baseball scenes look really good because they recruited a bunch of baseball players to come down to Durham, North Carolina and kind of work out and train with these guys and be in the movie. And I guess Kevin Cosner was saying that um, he was so nervous working out with these guys because they were, you know, he played a little in high school, but these guys were the real deal. They're, you know, low A ball players. Some guys played semi-pro ball, but they're, you know, guys that had played professionally and, you know, he's trying to hang with them. And he says, you know, he was nervous, but he ended up putting one out of the stadium when they were kind of just, you know, fooling around. And that, he feel like that kind of won them over a little bit. And he felt a lot more relaxed after that. But, I, you know, he obviously has some good baseball chops, uh, shows it off as a switch hitting catcher there with some power. And uh, I guess he legitimately parked some out during some of the shots. So uh, good on him. Um, definitely plays a part well. Uh, oh, and one of the, I guess, the real-life manager of the Durham Bulls at the time helped train some of these players, too, and that that manager was none other than Grady Little, who would later become manager of the Boston Red Sox, uh, kind of infamously the manager of the Boston Red Sox, uh, but he was manager of the Bulls at the time and kind of assisted in this movie as well. Um, one more thing, they talked about Crash Davis owning the home run record. Uh, he sets the home run record in relative obscurity, which is, again, part of the, part of the theme of the movie is him toiling away and, and getting this record when no one really cares about it. Uh, but they say the record is 226. Um, that's actually far from the record for minor league home runs. The record at the time of the movie came out was 432 set by a 1950s ball player named Buzz Arlett. Since then, it's been broken by a player named Mike Hessman, who played about 100 games in the big leagues with the Mets and the Tigers. Uh, but again, I think that kind of speaks to a player that obviously did really well in the minor leagues, but didn't you know if he got a shot in the major leagues it didn't really happen for him just never really uh was cut out to, to be in the big leagues and um kind of a real life crash davis so um so yeah there's some trivia i don't know any other anything other tidbits you want to add i was just thinking um that that i said at the beginning that i don't like this movie and and i don't but um as we've been talking about it through through this entire conversation there are more lines and more scenes in this movie that that stick with me and, and make me smile or make me laugh or or even just make me think about think good thoughts about baseball than than any other movie I could think of except for maybe Major League and 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 that 
really does speak well of the film and and the writing and uh, and pretty much everything that went into it is it's it's got so many quotable moments it's got so many scenes and we didn't even talk about them all because there's also the the scene where uh where Lelouch gets promoted and Crash gets cut and so Crash goes to the bar and he gets drunk and Lelouch shows up and and Crash tries to start a fight with him and so Lelouch punches him <laughs> with with his non-pitching hand and, and Crash makes a big deal out of that and like good job using your non-pitching <laughs> <You're learning. laughs> hand right um and, and there's just there's there's a lot of good stuff in here and and for all that it's never going to be one of my favorite baseball movies I'm absolutely 100% glad that I have seen it at least once um, so that I can, I'll, I'll have those memories and, and, ha- and I'll understand the references when people make them now. Yeah. And it, it's probably best understood as like a, a movie that just has a lot of great baseball scenes rather than like a great movie necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because I, when you wrote your review, I was like, what's the plot of Bull Durham? I don't even remember what the plot is. I remember there was a love triangle, but is there anything more than that? And there really isn't. It's like Abby Lelouch grows up a little bit and becomes a better pitcher the, nothing. No, we don't really care what happens to the Durham Bulls. I mean, they they have a losing streak and then they got hot, but it's not like the Carolina League crowns on the, at the uh, on the line or anything like that. Right. And the movie the movie doesn't care because it doesn't really tell you what the record is yeah. at the end. Oh yeah. I mean, Crash gets and neither neither of those players are even with the team right. at the end of the year. Crash gets cut and Lelouch is promoted, and we don't care about how it's uh, the rest of the team. Um, so. You know the plot is maybe forgettable a little bit, but uh, but yeah, I think the 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 writing for a guy that that was his third screenplay, that's pretty remarkable. It was a really good script. It actually was was nominated for an Oscar for for best screenwriting that year, uh, and it was a really critically acclaimed movie. I mean, maybe it's not your favorite, and maybe I don't think it's the most memorable plot, but um, Sports Illustrated called it the best sports movie of all time. Uh, it's it's in Bravo's top 100 funniest movies of all time, ranked number 55. The American Film Institute ranked it in their top 100 comedies of all time, so pretty high praise. Uh, Siskel and Ebert at the time gave it two thumbs up. Gene Siskel actually ranked it as the third best movie of the year, uh, which is you know if you, considering it's a baseball movie, I mean I think people like to dismiss baseball movies. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people aren't baseball fans. Maybe they don't get get baseball. But for a baseball movie to get that much critical acclaim and for it to get box office acclaim, um, mm-hmm. pretty remarkable, especially for a guy that that was his first movie directing his third screenplay he'd ever really written for that it was going to be made into a movie. Uh, pretty remarkable. And, and, and a lot of actors, too, that a lot of them are still kind of early in their career as well. Yeah. And and the another thing beyond just the, the, the stuff we've mentioned is that it really just gets – um, it gives you, I think, a real sense uh, of what baseball and what minor league baseball in particular are like. Um, I, I've been in North Carolina in the summer, and, and I can I can just feel it again when they're riding around on the bus between the different cities. The the dog days of summer, even though um, I think I think weren't they. I think I read somewhere that they were filming this in the winter or something. And so they were actually, you can, there are some scenes where you can noticeably see their breath. (laughs) It gets cold. Right. So uh, even with that, they made it feel like, Oh man, those are the, that's the dog days of summer in North Carolina. Absolutely. I've been there. I've done that. I, I feel it again. Um, and just like, so the bus rides, the, 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 the games, the way that, um, you know, the, uh, the the sideshow kind of stuff like the crown prince or the bull in the outfield can kind of overtake the sport at minor league games just the uh, and everything feels you go in the 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 locker room is, is not these what we see in the movies with the with the uh you know the major league locker rooms is is dark and it's cramped and and guys are just trying to get where they need to go and, and so it, it, like you said earlier, sl- a slice of life is a really good description of it because it really does just feel like um, a slice of life, a, a season in the minor leagues. It it looks and feels like it, and and it even gives you the. He talks. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, the Shelton had talked about. Oh, they always hit these grand slams to win the game at the end, and that hardly ever happens. And he's right. Baseball, baseball is a game of failure. I mean, we talk about these guys, 300 hitters. 
right? That means they didn't get a hit seven times out of ten, more than twice as often as they did. And that's a good hitter. So baseball is, is this this sport of a failure. And and so this movie shows us failure. I mean, Crash Davis. It, it he's he's the real main focus, and he, his whole thing is is he fails to ever reach the major leagues. I, I want to go back to a little bit to what you mentioned about North uh, being have this having this set in North Carolina. Like mm-hmm. this could have been set in you know like the New York Penn League or the California League or something like that. But mm-hmm. I don't. I think it's a much different movie. I think the oh, fact yeah, they absolutely. chose Durham, North Carolina, was brilliant really because it yeah it works when you when you when you when you're running through the south in all these war memorial stadiums that are yeah dilapidated at the time dilapidated run down it feels like minor league baseball like if this comes out 15 years 20 years later it's a brand new ballpark in a suburb of like atlanta or you know you know it's a nice new ballpark a shiny new ballpark in in durham which is what they have now Mm-hmm. So it's kind of nice that they came along in the late 80s when it still looks like what you think a minor league baseball stadium looks like. It's in the south um, where, you know, first of all, it's gorgeous. Uh, you have gorgeous scenery. And, mm-hmm. and, and you kind of have that feel of, of what baseball, like small town baseball kind of feels like uh, that you wouldn't get, I think, in the California League necessarily. Absolutely. Maybe you get it in the Midwest a little bit, but it'd be different. So. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I think it helps to have the southern draws a little bit, like the their their uh, radio announcer having that thick southern draw. I think really yeah. adds to it quite a bit. So having it in Durham, which they were in Durham because one of the producers owned the Durham Bulls. I mean, that's the big reason why they chose Durham, North huh. Carolina. Um, but it really did make, kind of make that uh, make that movie. That's really really another character in the film. So yeah, yep. Uh, well, I guess that'll kind of do it. Any last thoughts on Bull Durham? Nope, right. I don't think so. Any any thought? Any ideas of what you want to do? Uh, what movie you want to review next? I know we've kind of batted around some ideas. Is there something you? I know you. I know you've already written a couple of reviews. Is there something you'd like to get to? Uh, well, you and I have talked about uh, talked about doing Field of Dreams because you really like it, and and that's another one I don't care for as much. So that could be a fun discussion. Yeah, that'd be a good um, one. I know Craig Calcaterra is big on the I don't care for Field of Dreams. I think Rob Nyer as well doesn't care for it. So it is a very it's a very popular movie, but a very polarizing film as well. So yes. maybe we'll have to get to that as next. Uh, that would be mm-hmm. interesting. So, yeah, maybe we'll get to that one. That sounds good. All right. Well, uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Appreciate it. Uh, looking back at Bold Durham with you. Thanks for having me. All right. It was fun. Thanks to all our listeners and readers, and uh, we'll talk to you next time.